Thank you for joining us today and welcome to the first webinar in the new STS webinar series. Each month, the STS webinar series will highlight different topics that are relevant to the CT surgery specialty. Today's topic is on changes in documentation and code selection for office and outpatient evaluation and management coding in 2021. If you missed the 2021 STS coding workshop, access to the digital archive is now available for purchase. It includes all of the content presented during the workshop, including more on today's webinar topic. Learn more at sts.org slash coding workshop. We want to make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To this end, you may enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The panelists will try to respond to as many of your questions as possible. Please note this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our panelists for this session, Frank Nichols, Aaron Cheng, and Julie Painter. Good evening. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and thank you, Wes, for the introduction. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank and uh, welcome Dr. Aaron Chang, who's a Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Washington. He's a general thoracic surgeon by training and also specialty training in critical care. Aaron's been a longstanding member of our workforce on coding and uh, documentation and reimbursement. And he's also taken on the uh, challenging task of understanding the uh, whole area of E&M coding. And he's gonna talk to us about the new 2020, uh, 2021 changes this evening. Also joining us is Ms. Julie Painter. Julie is our professional staff coding uh, expert from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Many of you will know her from the coding hotline. And with that, Aaron, uh, I'd, uh, I'd like you to go ahead. I'd like to welcome everyone for joining us um, today on this STS webinar. This is an update on the new office and outpatient evaluation management codes um, that had gone into place beginning of this year, January. And this, uh, this particular webinar is put on behalf by the STS Workforce on Coding and Reimbursement. The specific things I'm gonna to discuss today are going to pertain to the new and established office and outpatient visit codes. Um, one an important thing to remember is these changes that for these codes went into effect um, beginning in January. And essentially for coders and providers, that means you now have to remember that there are two documentation guidelines for ENM visits. One's with, that pertains specifically to the new patient and established patient office and outpatient visit codes. And then the old guidelines, the ones that um, have always been in, been in place prior to this year, uh, 1995 and 1997, when those guidelines were established for the other ENM visit codes, and particularly relevant for cardiothoracic surgeons are gonna be the hospital inpatient visits. I am not going to be talking about these codes. I'm going to be focusing um, exclusively on the, uh, the new patient and established patient office visits. I uh, really have no disclosures to pertain pertaining to this particular talk. I do want to uh, note in advance, however, that I will be sharing slides that are, that are uh, taken from the AMA CPT uh, guidebook for coding. And so I'd like to uh, just make sure that in advance I've given some credit to those. So what are the key coding changes for these ENM codes? The first, there's two key things um, that have changed. And one is selecting a level of service based on components is now based on the medical decision-making component. The second other key element is when you're selecting a level of service based on time, it's now no longer face-to-face -face time for the office visit, but really the total time that the provider uh, uh, performs on the day of the encounter addressing the patient's problem. Um, with that said, you can see here from the slide that um, the, um, there are four codes to choose from for the new patient visits. They've uh, deleted the most minimal code in this family, 99201, but there still remains five codes to choose from for the established patient visits. And as I mentioned before, um, previously, when you're looking at components, history and examination are no, are no longer a required component for um, selecting a level of service based on components. It's just medical decision-making. So the level of services for these codes, however, have not changed. There's still a range in terms of their um, complexity from straightforward, low, moderate to high. And this is true for both the new patient and the uh, established patient office visits. Um, notably in total time, 
um, instead of typical time that was face-to-face, -face, it's now total time with discrete ranges that um, determine a level of service when you are choosing um, a, uh, either a new patient visit or off established patient visit based on total time. Now, I do wanna specifically point out, however, that when you're choosing a level of service based on medical decision-making, while it is no longer required that physical examination or history be uh, a required component um, for these codes, it's still important to note that uh, history and physical examination is, is important from the perspective of, of documenting what is medically appropriate as it pertains to helping the uh, provider document the medical decision-making process. Um, and so it's still important to document the necessary history and uh, examination for the uh, for that visit, although you don't necessarily choose it or use it to uh, select a level of service. Uh, medical decision making still, however, still has three elements that you're going to be looking at. And what's um, a little bit different now, it's new, is that only two out of these three elements have to be met at the minimum level, regardless of whether it's a new patient visitor or an established patient visit, in order to. Uh, um, choose that level of service. And the elements are listed here. I'm gonna go into deep, more detail about these um, uh, shortly. So the first element is the problem addressed. The second element is the data management one. And the third element is the risk of management. Specifically talking about this first element toward medical decision-making, um, this is the problem addressed. And CPT and CMS have really provided more specific language uh, defining what a problem addressed is. Um, it is really any disease, any condition, illness, injury, it can be any symptoms or signs that the provider is addressing for the patient at that patient visit. You don't have to have a labeled diagnosis. And one of the sort of key things that have been pointed out is a lot of times um, uh, the symptoms or the signs or the constellation of symptoms that the patient comes to see a provider for um, maybe may drive that medical decision-making process even though the ultimate diagnosis after it's um, been determined, it's actually quite benign. And because of it's the, the problem that's gonna be driving the medical decision-making process can be quite severe or, and you need to do a lot of um, tests or studies or evaluation to rule out that it's not a severe problem, this may drive the complexity of the overall level of service for that uh, patient visit. Likewise, um, CMS and CPT have also provided more specific descriptors defining the categories and helping um, providers classify the problems that are being, um, that, that they're seeing a patient for into uh, various categories. And the categories are lifted, listed here. Um, they're also subcategories and sort of using these categories, you can start to think about how you would classify the complexity of the problem that um, you're seeing the patient for. And so when you're actually selecting the, this particular element, this first element, the problems that are being addressed, it takes into account both the number of problems that you're addressing at the visiting counter, as well as the complexity of problems that you're gonna address. I would submit that probably for, for most cardiothoracic surgeons, surgical problems, patients are going to be uh, evaluated based on the complexity of the problems. However, you may have conditions where you're addressing more than one problem that are chronic, and if you accumulate those problems that you're addressing, this can increase the uh, complexity of this particular first element. As I mentioned before, most uh, problems that a cardiothoracic surgeon is gonna see in his or her office are gonna fall into that moderate complexity um, problem level. And some of the considerations when you're deciding, is, is this a moderate complexity problem? Um, uh, I've tried to list here in terms of how you can go about thinking about it. So a problem that, that is, would be considered moderate complexity would be typically a problem that requires additional intervention. That intervention can be additional treatment, such as surgery. It could be a diagnostic evaluation. It could be management, such as prescribing medications to appropriately manage that problem. Also, the problem addressed will um, cause or have the potential of causing significant functional impairment or morbidity without further intervention. Um, now the problem itself, the condition itself and its effect on the patient at the time of the patient encounter doesn't necessarily require the patient to be hospitalized. However, further intervention, the further management may require hospitalization such as surgical treatment. So it's important to distinguish that the problem addressed is really addressing the effect of, of that, that problem on the patient 
um, and separate that out necessarily from the complexity of the treatment. That's usually, uh, that's in the third element. Now, what are some examples that cardiothoracic surgeons may commonly see in the, um, in the office for with regards to uh, uh, problems that are gonna be moderate complexity? So I try to provide some uh, examples here. So a patient that uh, is seen for a mediastinal mass that's noted incidentally on CT imaging. In this particular situation, the mediastinal mass is something that is, of, uh, it's, it's new, newly diagnosed, um, or it's a new problem, but it's of unclear etiology. You don't actually have uh, a known histological diagnosis. So it has the potential of being something that can cause morbidity or significant mortality. And it's certainly something that needs further evaluation and management. Similarly, a patient that's being seen with early stage lung cancer. In this case, you have a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, and, um, and while lung cancer in and of itself as a sort of a layperson's condition is something that can cause significant um, uh, illness and, and morbidity, uh, even mortality if not treated. In this particular situation, here's an early stage lung cancer um, where the, usually this patient's condition itself right then doesn't necessarily require hospitalization but it does warrant additional workup. It does warrant um, additional uh, treatment and evaluation, and therefore it falls into this moderate complexity uh, category. Um, a benign condition, for instance, would be a patient that comes is seen in clinic um, with reflux symptoms. And despite being on optimal medica medications that have been prescribed by their GI doctor or their primary care physician, they're now seeing you as the surgeon for uh, further management of these reflux symptoms because they're not, the treatment um, goals have not been reached for that patient in terms of symptom relief. From a cardiac perspective, some moderate complexity problems, for instance, would be patients with valvular disease. And a, a, an example would be a patient with uh, mitral regurgitation who may be clinically asymptomatic, but by echo, um, the patient has a decreased left ventricular ejection fraction, which suggests that this patient's mitral regurgitation is getting worse and if patient needs uh, further treatment or, or management that may require uh, mitral valve repair or mitral valve surgery. Um, another example from the, the, the cardiac arena would be a, a patient who um, is found to have a 5.8 centime, centimeter, nearly six centimeter ascending aortic aneurysm. The patient's asymptomatic. This was found um, for a, a CT scan for a done for a different reason, but now you're evaluating this patient because Here's a patient who clearly has a problem that needs further management, further evaluation, and maybe even uh, a decision to uh, proceed for elective surgery. Um, again, another example would be coronary artery disease, a patient with uh, coronary artery disease who has stable angina symptoms. Again, this is a patient that doesn't necessarily need to be immediately uh, hospitalized, but this is a patient who uh, may require further evaluation and management, whether that be by coronary bypass surgery or by a, a, a PCI. Now, one of the challenges when for this particular element is sort of making that decision between when does a problem be, go from moderate complexity to one that becomes high complexity. Now, CPT and CMS have provided some guidelines and for what classifies as a high complexity uh, problem that's being addressed in clinic. And so those are typically, those conditions, whether acute or chronic, they're gonna pose a threat to the patient's life um, in the near term or cause significant functional impairment if they're, not, if they're not treated. Now, they don't define what near term is. And so I think in this situation, it's sort of a, what one might commonly um, consider among your peers as something that would be near term. In addition, CPT and CMS have recently come out with some clarification and some um, explanations about uh, where the role of comorbidities falls, fall into this particular uh, medical decision-making process. And so specifically, um, CMS has pointed out patient comorbidities um, don't directly count toward the complexity of this first element, the problem that you're addressing, unless you're also addressing this problem at the encounter. Now, with that said, um, patient comorbidities, however, may drive the overall complexity of the level of service um, because you may need to do additional workup, which data workup, which um, would fall into the second element of medical decision-making and it may increase the risk of management, which would fall into element three, the third element of medical decision-making. Now, comorbidities I would submit can, can indirectly increase the clinical severity of the problem that's being addressed on the individual patient. And I will give you some examples of that in the next slide. So examples of 
cardiothoracic surgical conditions that are that I would classify as high complexity problems. So taking the example of the mediastinal mass. So if the patient now has a mediastinal mass that's causing symptoms of shortness of breath, um, problems with breathing because of compressive airway symptoms while lying down or with exertion. Now this is a, a condition now that is potentially has severe exacerbation um, and it is potentially gonna cause functional impairment. So you're shifting, the, the condition itself now has a higher impact on the patient, um, causing high complexity. Likewise, a, a lung cancer that may be amenable to uh, surgical uh, treatment, surgical resection, now is causing symptoms because of the location of that, in, of the, uh, that tumor. It's an endobronchial tumor um, causing post-obstructive lobar pneumonia. So this is a patient who now may have been initially diagnosed with their, their uh, lung cancer because of pneumonia. You're seeing them, and here you're now having uh, systemic um, and severe symptoms that would make this go from a low, moderate complexity problem, lung cancer, to a high complexity problem. Likewise, that patient with reflux. And now this is where a situation where the, the comorbidities of the patients can impact the, or affect the impact of that problem, um, that condition that you're addressing on the patient. And it's shifted from going from moderate to high complexity. A patient with reflux who is also has very, uh, is very frail because of COPD. They can't tolerate that silent aspiration that's coming from reflux, that's causing recurrent hospitalizations for bronchitis and maybe for pneumonia. Now this reflux, because of the comorbidities patient has a more significant impact on the patient shifting it again to higher complexity problem. And then other conditions from cardiac, uh, from cardiac surgery would be severe AX stenosis that's complicated by worsening CHF because the patient has chronic renal failure. Perhaps if the patient didn't have uh, chronic renal insufficient, the CHF symptoms would be uh, less from the aortic stenosis. Here again, there's more systemic symptoms from this problem. Um, and likewise, uh, in, in the setting of the aneurysm, if you have a very large aneurysm, here there's an impending risk of rupture of, of life threat that's uh, urgent in the near term, this would be a high complexity issue. Now I'm gonna shift the gears and talk about the second element. Arguably the second element of medical decision-making is something that um, is, is more quantitative than the other two. The other two I would submit are a little bit more qualitative. The second one is the amount of data that you manage or the, the data management that you order and review in order to um, um, evaluate the problem that you're seeing the patient for. And this is, um, is a more quantitative uh, aspect to it. You can see here um, from the CPT uh, book, um, there are, depending on the how much data you have to review that you have to order, it increases the level of this second element uh, of medical decision-making. And so when you think about it conceptually, what is the second element? This is really the work that the provider, you as the provider have to do to evaluate the patient. This is the, um, the reviewing of different studies, results, tests, your interpretation, sort of that cognitive management that is uh, important um, for deciding how to treat this patient, how to further evaluate this patient. And so the second element has three categories. And I'm gonna talk about each of these categories because there have been some new um, clarifications that have been recently provided um, in March on these, uh, this particular element. So the first category is really the tests, documents, or the test studies, the data gathering that the uh, provider performs. So this can be a data gathering for the history when you have to use an independent historian, when the patient themselves or his or herself is unable to provide the, uh, the history. Now, into this category also is the idea that tests, that each test is unique. So now, as I mentioned before, we're, start, we're starting to count what is actually ordered and reviewed. And so the ordering and reviewing of each test or study by the provider is going to only count as a single entity toward this category on that day of encounter. The, the, the idea here is that CMS and CPT have at least so far put out that if you're gonna order a test, it's expected that you're gonna review that test result. You're gonna review that laboratory result. So you can't separately count ordering a lab and then subsequently reviewing the result of the lab. They're gonna to go together, ordering review. That's one single entity. It counts as one of the uh, element, one single uh, element for this particular category. Likewise, if you have tests that have uh, overlapping elements, so if you order a CBC and you also order and review a hemoglobin, um, the CBC and the human goblin, even though they have distinct CPT codes, if when you're ordering them, 
they're going to fall into that same single element and they're not going to count it as unique entities. There's going to be, uh, again, a single element. Um, one of the other things that uh, is important when you're doing this is that if it's necessary, if the, if the problem encountered requires or would normally require that you order a test, but because of the patient's risk factors or the patient's condition, you forego ordering that. You, you don't, you can get actually get credit for ordering that test or not ordering that test, but considering that test as a necessary part of the medical uh, evaluation. But you do need to document why or the reason why you not um, that you're foregoing that test in order to get credit for it in this first, this category one. Um, similarly, what's also been put out is now that you, there are a lot of times when a patient will be seen with the recurrent orders test. So uh, a provider is seeing a patient for their hemoglobin A1C and there's, they, the patient comes to the office, has a new hemoglobin value. You compare it to the old hemoglobin A1C value to see what it is. Um, that counts as one entity. Even though you're reviewing the new test, you're comparing it to the old test, that's only going to count as um, one unique test for that. That can also be applied, for instance, for a, a thoracic surgeon that may be seeing a patient for lung cancer surveillance. The patient comes in, um, has a, uh, a CT scan. You, the report is compared to the old report. Um, you can't count reviewing the report of the old report and the new report as two separate entities. That counts only as one entity if you're going to just if you're going to count the uh, CT scan, ordering a, and re review of report to this uh, this first category. Another uh, key thing that's come out is the um, review of external notes. Again, there's some um, clarification in terms of what constitutes review of external notes from a unique source. This is typically someone that's not in your specialty, um, someone that's not in your group practice. And this sort of addresses the idea that frequently cardiac and thoracic surgeons are being asked to provide second opinions. And so in this situation, a patient may be seen for a second opinion. They've been referred by their primary care physician to you for a second opinion about a, a procedure or about a condition for management. And you review the uh, notes of uh, another cardiothoracic surgeon that's not in your group practice. This would count as reviewing an external note. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, the use of an independent historian um, also falls into this category. You need to document the reason why you needed an independent historian, why the patient wasn't able to provide the history. And it's, uh, you don't have to necessarily get the independent history um, in person. You can, for instance, corroborate the history by phone call, but it does have to be directly from the independent historian. You can't use a, 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 a mediary, for instance. And then finally, um, I just point out that any combination of unique tests would count toward this category. In this case, for a moderate one, you need three. So you could have three unique lab tests. You could have one lab test that you've ordered or reviewed, a pathology report that you reviewed, um, and use of an independent historian. This would qualify to uh, meet this category in the, uh, uh, the combination of three. Now, shifting gears to the second category, this is where, um, uh, this is where a, phys a physician or qualified health professional is making an independent interpretation. And it's important to remember that if you're going to count this independent interpretation toward uh, medical decision-making process, it's not something that, um, that you would separately fill out or separately uh, report. This is an um, independent interpretation typically of a, um, a study or a test that an external physician or provider um, would separately report, and you are independently interpreting the uh, study um, toward the medical decision-making process that you're doing for that patient. Again, in this case, <clears throat> I think there's going to probably need to be further clarifications um, from CMS and CPT on this, but for now, from a, as a conservative approach, if you're ordering as a provider, if you're ordering and reviewing, um, and then subsequently doing an independent interpretation of the test, you should count that as only one one entity. You should count it as a category two and not double count it as category one. Um, I think CPT and CMS right now, um, the interpretation is, of it is if you're going to independently interpret a, a study or a test, you need to, you have the ordering and the review of the report, if you're going to re review, would go into your own interpretation of the, uh, the study or test result. And so this is just some language uh, provided by uh, CPT, CMS, 
on what is a separately reportable service. Essentially, what this says is that if you're going to perform a study or you're going to report a study um, or a test and separately bill for it, you cannot count um, those that toward uh, toward medical the medical decision making process. The third category in this second element is a discussion of management, and this is really the uh, discussion of the patient's management or the uh, study results with an um, uh, external physician or qualified health professional. You can't discuss this with your partner. You can discuss it with a, a different a, a individual from a different specialty um, <clears throat> would, would count. What, what, has, what is new now on this is that um, what they pointed out is that the discussion has to be an interactive exchange. It, it, it can't be a sort of one directional uh, exchange of information. And what I mean by that is um, if you as a cardiac surgeon see a patient that's been referred to you and you um, exchange, you write a letter um, back to the referring uh, medical provider informing them what your recommendations are, and that doesn't count as an exchange. Similarly, if you just copy your notes and, and send it to the um, referring provider or, or a medical provider, and there's no uh, return of information or input from the um, um, external physician, that, that would not qualify. Now, furthermore, one of the things that they have put out about this particular uh, category is that the discussion and the management um, um, doesn't necessarily have to, to occur on the date of the patient encounter, but you can only count it once in, um, at one, one time to one patient encounter. And it also can be asynchronous. And I think this sort of reflects the fact that a lot of times now patient discussions are actually occurring through inter uh, email exchanges. Um, and so the idea is that you may email a, uh, a physician about a patient's condition or problem. They, it's expected that they are going to um, uh, respond back in order to have that exchange. Now, the third element is the risk of management of the, uh, or the medical decision-making process. Um, and this is really a, uh, here's the definition, CPT's definition of risk. What's important to remember here is that this is the risk of management, not the risk of the patient's problem or the patient's condition, but the risk of the management to the patient. Um, and an important thing to remember is that the decision to not undergo management or to forego a certain type of treatment in and of itself classifies as um, uh, uh, important risk. And typically, you know, we, you may choose not to do something because the patient's comorbidity is at such high risk. That would be uh, something to, uh, to uh, document and it would be considered high risk. And I, I will give some examples of these in some later case scenarios. So risk of management from a surgical perspective, when you think about surgical treatment and surgical management, there's really two key components that you're really having to consider. These are the risks of the, uh, the procedure itself. These are the procedural risks and the risks of the patient's uh, comorbidities that may affect the uh, surgical outcome or the treatment outcome. And so these are the two risks that you would wanna document when you're starting to uh, appropriately document the level of risk for this third element. Um, when you look at the, uh, the descriptors uh, for the different levels of risk in this third element, you can see here that most of the uh, commonly performed uh, cardiac and thoracic surgical procedures are either going to fall into a, a moderate risk profile or a high risk profile. The moderate risk profile are those decisions regarding um, either minor surgeries with risk factors or um, major elective surgeries without patient risk factors. Um, similarly, in the high-risk one, this, this is oftentimes going to be um, decisions for major elective surgery with either identified patient risk factors, patient comorbidities, or, or procedural risk factors. And obviously, emergency major surgery, or again, as I said before, the decision to forego a, a treatment or to forego surgery would be classified as a uh, high risk of management for this element. In addition to this, there's been some new language that's come out with regards to uh, the, this third element to try to help um, guide what uh, is considered minor or major surgery. Now, specifically, CMS and CPT don't necessarily um, use any specific criteria. So you don't use whether or not a procedure, for instance, has a global length of a global surgical period to determine whether or not this is minor or major surgery. And I think this is important because if you think about the, these codes, 
and the use and the application of these ENM codes, this really not only covers this entire the spectrum of cardiothoracic surgery, but you're really talking about procedures that range from um, simple skin lesions that are being removed to things as, um, as complex as multiple, multiple redo surgeries for that cardiac surgical patients may undergo. And so this concept of minor and major is really based on, for lack of a better term, what would be, what would make clinical common sense. Um, so this is the common meaning of classifying something as a major procedure versus a ma minor procedure would be those terms that would be um, commonly accepted by uh, trained clinicians, not necessarily trained cardiothoracic surgeons, but trained clinicians across the, uh, all the medical specialties. Um, they do also provide some definitions with regard to what is classified as an elective uh, surgery versus an emergent or urgent surgery. The elective surgery are those uh, surgical procedures or that can be um, planned, they can be scheduled. Um, whereas emergent or urgent surgeries are those that need to really be performed immediately or really within a short period of time that's necessary to, uh, to be undertaken to stabilize the patient before proceeding um, to uh, surgery or to the procedure. And this just, uh, again, um, the purpose of this particular slide, I just wanna point out that, again, when you are um, evaluating a patient, if, you, if the assessment is felt that the risk of that procedure or that further diagnostic testing or treatment is too high. This would then obviously classify as a, as a, a high risk of, of management, even though you're not actually uh, performing or undergoing that uh, management. Um, and then specific, similar to sort of de determining what is considered minor or um, uh, a major uh, surgery, the, the risk determination of high, medium, low, or minimal would again be something that uh, would be commonly acceptable to uh, trained clinicians. And so it doesn't specifically say that you have to use certain calculators like the STS risk calculator to define what risk is. It's really what would be commonly accepted uh, as, as, uh, as accepted as um, either a low risk procedure or a high risk procedure to the, uh, to the medical uh, professionals. So with that kind of idea in place, you would think that most cardiothoracic surgical procedures are going to be really fall into that high risk. Um, so the, the high risk one category, one of the high risk uh, definitions is a decision regarding elective major surgery that's uh, in a patient that has either identified patient risk factors or procedural risk factors. And so I would argue that patients who are undergoing almost all major cardiac surgical procedures are going to fall into, and, and most thoracic surgical procedures are really going to fall into that uh, procedural risk factor category. You know, with patients that are undergoing cardiac surgery, um, obviously you have the risks of with cardiopulmonary bypass, with the circulatory arrest, um, and that's these are patients with just primary sternotomy. Needless to say, um, the uh, reduced sternotomies and the multiplied redos. And similarly, with major thoracic procedures such as uh, lung resections like lobectomies, you're working around pulmonary arteries, you're working around the airway. These are all procedural risk factors. And it's important to document that, however, in this particular element. Likewise, many of our patients um, have a lot of comorbidities that affect the, uh, the, this, this element. So many patients, if the patients don't necessarily have procedural risk factors, um, for instance, a, a bronchoscopy in and of itself may not be a, a, a major uh, May, may not be a, a procedure that has um, significant procedural risk factors, but a bronchoscopy in a patient with significant uh, interstitial lung disease would be risk factors that would uh, push, the, uh, push this element higher. So I wanna spend the next few minutes sort of giving some case examples, taking the elements that I've talked about, hopefully in order to clarify um, some of some, how one would apply um, um, these medical decision-making elements to uh, selecting a level service. So the first case example I have here, and, and I qualify this by saying that this is not the actual documentation, but this is sort of more of the uh, case scenario, is that of a 60-year-old new patient with uh, COPD who's seen by you in clinic for a lung nodule uh, that was found in the right lung during a lung cancer screen uh, CT scan that was ordered by the primary care physician. So you as a surgeon perform not only a medically appropriate history and examination, but you document that, um, you, that you 
reviewed the radiologist's report of the screen CT. You also have now compared that CT scan to an older report of a, a prior CT scan um, that had been done for trauma, which did not mention or show the uh, lung nodule. And therefore you interpret this nodule on the screening CT as a condition that's very consistent, likely with an early stage lung cancer. Um, it wasn't seen on prior CT. And in addition, your interpretation for medical decision-making or surgical decision-making is that this patient has some evidence of emphysema on the CT scan, but it would be amenable to a, a segmental lung resection based on the size of the nodule, based on the location, it's in the right lower lobe superior segment. And so this may be amenable to surgery. Now, as part of the further workup for this patient, you order a CT PET study, you order PFTs, and you also order a CBC and a, a, chems, a chemistry panel. You discuss with this patient that your concerns that this is a lung nodule, um, that this lung nodule is actually concerning for lung cancer. You discuss the treatment options, uh, including that of uh, invasive lymph node staging and undergoing lung surgery uh, if the, uh, the other studies that you've ordered come out to be acceptable for uh, appropriate for lung resection. The patient agrees and says that he'll follow up in clinic after the tests have been complete for uh, further preoperative teaching and surgical and, and for uh, actually doing the surgical consent. So he agrees to, to follow through the surgery if surgery is if ultimately decided to be appropriate. So how would you uh, um, uh, classify this particular one with regards to medical decision-making? So this is a new patient. So this is gonna be the 9920 type of codes. And so in this particular situation, I say the problem addressed is a lung nodule. The, it's a clinical concern for primary lung cancer given the patient's risk factors, but I would classify this as a moderate level uh, complexity problem. It's an undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis. In terms of the data management, the sec this uh, second element, in category one, um, there are four unique sources or tests um, that uh, would apply to this first category. You've ordered the CT PET, you've ordered the PFTs, you've ordered a CBC and a chemistry panel. These are all unique tests. Now, you did also uh, review the imaging reports of the lung screen CT and the old trauma CT, but you're applying this toward interpretation. So you're applying these, this, um, these two uh, CT scans, um, reports, and studies, um, and they're going to count not as individual unique sources, but as one because they're the same category. This is going to be applied toward category two, the interpretation of the external CT images. You know, you had interpreted this lung nodule as being consistent with cancer. You mentioned that there is emphysematous changes. You think from a medical decision-making point that um, this might undergo a segmentectomy, and you documented it as such. Category three, which is discussion with the external physician provider, does, doesn't apply because it's not documented and it wasn't performed. And so for this particular uh, element, two out of the three categories are, are met, category one and category two. This would qualify as an extensive um, component for this element. And so I would classify this as extensive. In terms of the third element, risk, here a decision has been made um, in shared decision-making with the uh, with, by the patient that uh, to proceed with surgery, there are likely risk factors with this patient, uh, both procedural risk factors with the segmentectomy as well as inherent comorbidities if the patient would be emphysema. So I would classify this element as hot. So of the two of these elements, you have a moderate risk, an extensive data analysis, and a high risk um, uh, risk of management. So you have extensive and high. Both um, are two out of the three elements that are needed to be met for this new patient visit. This would, I would classify as a 99205. Case number two, this is a 67-year-old now established patient who's seen by you in clinic for lung cancer surveillance. This is uh, two years after you've performed a lung resection on this patient. So here you, doc you perform and document um, an appropriate exam uh, for this patient do perform an appropriate, medically appropriate physical, but now you review the newly obtained CT scan that the patient did prior to coming to clinic. Uh, you compare that one to the, the one the year before, and you note you don't see any new or concerning chest findings. You do note the, uh, the, the staple line in the scar is unchanged, but because there's no formal read, you confirm, you discuss this with the radiologist by phone, and you discuss your findings and the CT images with the radiologist. Um, who uh, 
preliminarily agrees. And so you inform the patient of the CT interpretation, you encourage the patient to stop smoking, um, but you document that the, the active smoking cessation is being performed by the primary care physician. And the plan is to have the patient come back to clinic in one year with another CT scan uh, done prior to clinic for comparison. The patient agrees for follow-up. In this case, the medical decision-making level of service here, based on medical level of service, um, I classify this as a 99213. Um, this is an established patient visit. And so the problem addressed here is for lung cancer surveillance. This is a, I classify this as a low uh, complexity problem. It's a chronic stable condition. Now, you did encourage the patient to, smoke, to uh, stop smoking, but this is not really a problem that you would count toward, um, the, uh, toward the problems addressed. You, instead, you mentioned that you deferred this, that this is really being deferred to the primary care physician. So this would not classify as two chronic stable conditions. Um, this is really uh, just one, one um, chronic stable condition following into the low category. Of the data that it's been managed, you have uh, from category one, again, um, you now have looked at the CT images, but you're applying that to category two because you're documenting your interpretation of the CT images. Likewise, you've now discussed the CT images with the radiologist. And so two out of the three categories are being met in data reviewed and analyzed. This would classify it as an extensive element for this one. And then the risk, the risk of management is really the risk uh, of repeating the CT scan and following up again in one year in your clinic. This risk is really minimal. This is minimal risk of uh, morbidity from additional testing or treatment. And so for this particular uh, scenario, you have to, um, a low problem addressed, an extensive data analyzed, and a minimal uh, risk of management. So you have to have two out of the three elements meeting the, uh, a certain level of criteria. Um, in this case, low and extensive. So this would be a low uh, level of service for based on medical decision-making of 99213. Case example number three. This is a 70-year-old now that you're seeing who's a step, is an established patient in your practice. Um, for ischemic cardiomyopathy. The patient had previously undergone a cabbage by one of your partners, um, and he also has a history of uh, chronic kidney disease, and he's being seen by you for evaluation of LVAD implantation as destination therapy. As a surgeon, you perform an appropriate uh, medical exam in, in history, but you also document that you reviewed the patient's uh, right heart cath, left heart cath, and echo. Um, you also discussed the patient's management and treatment with the heart failure cardiologist by phone. You review the nephrology outpatient clinic notes, um, and you discuss the patient's chronic severity of chronic kidney disease with the nephrologist by email, um, particularly discussing the risk of ordering a CT angio because in your decision-making here, you would consider a CT scan given that it's a reduced ergonomy, um, but you wanna know the impact that this would have on this patient's kidney and uh, chronic kidney disease, as well as the impact of bad surgery uh, on this patient. And you do this on the day of the encounter prior to the visit uh, when you were preparing, reviewing this patient for a clinic. You discuss with the patient and the spouse the risk of undergoing LVAD surgery, as well as the CT angio in the context of uh, a reduced ergonomy. After a discussion, um, the patient and his spouse decide that they want to do not want to undergo surgery. They don't undergo the risk of a CT angio because they, the, the high likelihood of this patient uh, coming out and requiring permanent dialysis is unacceptable to him. And therefore he decides not to have any medical or surgical intervention. So in this particular case, this is an established patient. This patient was seen previously by your partner for the cabbage. Um, I would classify this as a 99215. The problem being addressed. This is an end-stage ischemic cardiomyopathy with severe progression. You're thinking about the patients being referred for destination bad therapy. This would classify as a high uh, complexity problem. It's an acute or chronic, chronic condition that poses a threat to the patient's life and bodily function. In terms of data management, the second element, category one, um, four unique sources or tests. You have two unique imaging reports that were reviewed Left and right heart cath, I would classify as one unique source. The echo as another one. You review the nephrology's notes 
And then you consider the CT angio as part of appropriate uh, decision-making, but, but you don't necessarily perform it or order it because of undesirable risks to the patient. So you get credit for it. Four unique sources are tested here. Um, in category two, um, though you have reviewed the images of the uh, cath and echo, you do not document a separate interpretation and therefore this category does not apply. In category three, however, you do discuss and document the management decisions with the heart failure cardiologist, as well as the risks of uh, dialysis with the nephrologist. This counts for category three. And so again, here are two out of the three categories are met. This is extensive uh, data management review um, based on meeting category one, which requires at least three source, unique sources and category three discussion. Similarly, the risks of what you would offer this patient LVAD, these risk, procedural risks are high. The patient risk factors are also high. This alone would classify. But in addition to this, the fact that the patient is foregoing this treatment because of too high a risk would also classify this as high. So for this one, 99215, you've got three elements that are met, um, high problem addressed, extensive data reviewed, high risk of management. This classifies for this established patient a 99215. Case example number four. Um, similarly, this is now a new patient, 35-year-old, otherwise healthy uh, person that's being referred for a posterior mediastinal mass that was noted on CT scan that had been ordered because the, patient, the patient's primary care doctor was working up uh, some sternochondral pain and found this posterior mediastinal mass. You as the surgeon perform a relevant history and exam of this otherwise healthy patient, and you review and document the following. You review the images of the CT scan. You interpret this as a paravertebral mass, likely a neurogenic tumor. However, it's difficult to determine if there's widening of the neural foramen, and therefore you decide that it's appropriate to order an MRI of the thoracic spine to uh, better image the spinal column. You also <clears throat> discuss management with the problem. You explain to the patient that the location of the tumor does not necessarily correlate with the location of the chest pain, but nonetheless, because of, of its location and it's likely um, uh, a tumor that needs to be removed, you recommend surgical resection as a combined approach with uh, a neurosurgeon. The patient uh, agrees to surgery and will return for pre-op teaching um, once the MRI is complete. So how would I classify this one? I classify this one as a new patient, a 99204. The problem addressed is a paravertebral tumor. Uh, again, moderate complexity. It's a newly diagnosed problem. You don't have tissue histology and you're uncertain the prognosis, but it does require further management, further treatment. The data reviewed and analyzed. Category one, even though you ordered the MRI, it's not been analyzed or interpreted yet, so it's, you're not counting it toward this category because order and review and interpretation count is one unique and you can't double count it on separate encounters. For category two, you, done, you have interpreted, however, and documented the CT images um, that the PCP had ordered. There is no discussion documented that you had with the neurosurgeon, even though you discussed the need for neurosurgical intervention with the patient. So category three doesn't count. So one out of the three categories of this element has been satisfied. This is a moderate level for this, element, this second element. Now, in terms of risk of management, so the MRI study, the, uh, the, this is likely a minimal uh, risk to the patient, she's otherwise healthy, no, um, no kidney problems. The surgical management I would submit, however, is high. The decision regarding elective major surgery, um, given procedural risk factors of this, the location of this paravertebral tumor requiring a combined approach with neurosurgery and the risk of a spinal cord injury. And so in this case, <clears throat> Element number three would be high for risk of management. Um, what I put in parentheses is incorrect there. This is high overall. And so this would be um, of these elements, the problem addressed is moderate. The data uh, reviewed is moderate. The risk of management is high. However, two out of the three need to meet the minimal level for a given level of service. This would be a 99204. The next example I have is um, that of an 80-year-old established patient with COPD, congestive heart failure, who's referred by your primary care physician for ongoing chest pain. The patient had actually recently been seen in an urgent care clinic following a ground-level fall. The patient's accompanied by uh, uh, his daughter, 
And in the office, when you see this patient, the patient is tachypnic, he's got shallow labor breathing, and he's confused. You as a surgeon perform a quick history and exam, um, and you review the documents, the reviews, and document the following. In this case, during the patient's visit, you have a pulse extremity reading that says 85%. Um, the history you have to obtain from the daughter because the patient's too agitated, too short of breath, and therefore unable to provide the history. You order a chest x-ray, which you quickly review, which shows a moderate-sized pleural fusion, maybe a small pneumothorax, and only a, a non-displaced or minimally displaced single rib fracture. You discuss uh, management with the patient and daughter. In this case, you rec recommend, given the, the, the symptoms and signs that this patient is being seen for in your clinic as, as needing to be admitted to the hospital for further management and workup. The patient has a DNR-DNI status, but the daughter, who's the P PPOA, um, agrees uh, to the admission, um, <clears throat> given that uh, this would be in alignment with the patient's wishes at this point in time. So how would I classify this one? This is a, uh, an established patient. This is a patient that you had previously seen before. Um, the, and in this case, the problem addressed are the symptoms and signs of tachypnea, hypoxia, chest pain, and pleural fusion. Um, you don't count these all as multiple ones. This is sort of the constellation of symptoms for this particular problem. And this is a, uh, considered a high complexity problem. There's a risk of acute injury. This is acute injury with a risk of uh, threat to the patient's bodily function or life. Of the data management, in this case, category one um, is not applicable. You did order the checks x-ray, but you're gonna count this as interpretation based for, toward your medical decision-making. And then notably, there is a pulse oximetry reading that's documented. Um, however, specifically CMS and CPT point out that pulse oximetry readings are not considered a test that would be applicable to category one. There is no discussion with any external physician provider. Um, perhaps if you had discussed admission with a hospitalist and for management, this would count as category three, but this was not documented or performed. And so only one out of the three categories are met. Nevertheless, the risk of management for this patient is high, the decision regarding hospitalization. And so therefore, two out of the three elements here are met. Um, problems addressed is high, the data reviewed is moderate, the risk is high, and so this would qualify as a 99215. Now, finally, I'm gonna spend just a brief period of time talking about um, uh, out uh, total time, the use of total time for medical decision-making with these uh, codes. Again, it's now the total time on the date of the encounter uh, rather than the face-to-face uh, -face time um, that uh, had been the criteria when you, you were using time previously before January 1st of this year. And furthermore, the time no longer has to be spent in majority of counseling and care coordination. Um, this is no longer a requirement for the use of time. <clears throat> Importantly, they've tried to make it easier to remember for new patient visits that they've divided time into 15 minute intervals. Um, whereas for out for uh, the established patient visits, they're divided into 10 minute intervals. And what can you count toward total time? No longer does it have to be just counseling or care coordination, really all the activities that you're performing to address that patient's problem on the day of the encounter are, uh, do count. And, and why is this list important? This is important because it documents and justify, it's important to document and justify how you have uh, come up with the total time that you, um, that you have uh, applied for uh, when you use total time toward, for, uh, toward a level of service for, this, uh, for the visit. This is what does not count, time spent by your staff, time spent performing separately billable procedures, uh, time spent in teaching or for that is in specific to the management of the patient, and then time traveling from, from going to see the patient perhaps at a different institution does not count. Now, um, Finally, I just want to make, mention again um, the, uh, the use of prolonged service codes. There are two, the key thing here, this has previously been covered. Um, um, this applies only when to the 99205 or 99215 codes, um, but this is prolonged service for the date of the uh, office visit. Um, there are two codes here to remember, the G code, which is the code by uh, Medicare, for use by Medicare patients or those that follow Medicare rules. This is G2212, and then CPT has their code of 99417. And there's, they're a little bit different. For the 
for the for the Medicare code, the G2212 code, this applies after the maximum time has been reached for the nine for the uh, the 99205 or new 99215 code. Uh, after 15 minutes have been reached after the maximum time. Whereas, and this is kind of shown here um, with the new patient visit code. So the, the maximum time for 99205 is 74 minutes. After you reached 15 minutes, then you can apply to the 74 minutes, which, which puts you at 89 minutes, you can apply the G code. Um, similarly for the uh, established patients, the maximum time for this 99215 code is the 54 minutes after you've reached 15 minutes, which would make it 69 minutes, you can apply the G code. This is a little bit different from this 99417 add-on code, which is the CPT rules, which says it's the minimum time that for that code. So 99205, the minimum time is 60 minutes. Um, once you reach 15 minutes there, it would be 75 minutes. You can add the 99417 code if you're gonna use total time. Similarly, for the established patient, the minimum time here is 40 minutes. Um, so. Uh, once you've reached 55 minutes, you can uh, apply the 99417 add-on code if the patient is following CPT provider. The patient uh, is providing the CPT code uh, document rules. Um, finally, total time, as I mentioned before, um, it's important to doc the documentation of how you use total time should reflect and capture the time spent on various countable activities. And I just give a, uh, a statement here of how you one would qualify using total time for documentation purposes. And then finally, just a few thoughts. Um, I think as always, clear documentation facilitates appropriate and accurate coding. I think particularly for the level of services, it's important that uh, the provider document that they personally perform some of the services toward, uh, particularly for data management and, the, and sort of use of the word, word uh, or the I. I ordered, I reviewed, I interpreted, I discussed, um, sort of uh, demonstrates that there, it, was a, it was personally performed. Um, likewise, in doc documenting problems addressed, it's, it's useful to think of in your documentation how you're gonna classify those problems into those descriptive categories that uh, CMS and CBT have put to make it easier to determine what the level of complexity for that particular element would be. And then finally, included in the risks of management, um, it's important to document the risks, not only of the procedural risk, but also the comorbidities. And the reason I say that is, you know, you shouldn't assume that auditors will know that a redo aortic valve replacement in a young adult that has a history of chest radiation in the past for lymphoma is high risk if you don't document it. And so with that said, I'd uh, like to thank you for your participation and I am going to stop sharing and uh, turn it over to Julie, Frank, and Wes for comments and questions. There are any. Thanks, Dr. Chang. Um, we did get one question that came in, um, and the question is um, for aortic regurgitation and decision for TAVR was done. Is this considered a high complexity diagnosis? Oh, okay, decision for TAVR. So I think in this particular case, a um, aortic regurgitation, okay, you guys can hear me. Aortic regurgitation, so the, the uh, the problem diagnosed is aortic regurgitation or valvular disease with likely with symptoms. Um, the need to intervene, I think, is going to be either depending on the documentation of the impact of the aortic regurgitation on the, on the patient's condition overall, that's gonna determine whether it's a moderate or high level uh, complexity problem for the, uh, for the element number one. Um, for element number two, it's really going to de depend on what uh, what level of data management was reviewed or, or, or performed. And Julia, I, I know that there are, are particularly um, rules with regards to CMS with um, the need for sort of joint decision making. So I, 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 but I don't think, I think that, again, this would depend on what is documented for element number two. Finally, for the TAVR, you know, these endocardiac procedures, I think um, these are, are gonna be major procedures, in my opinion. They're, you know, when you think about a TAVR and you consider a major procedure, uh, compare that to a ultrasound guided biopsy or a port placement as being a major procedure, the TAVR really falls into that major procedure uh, category. In addition, the procedural risks with a TAVR are not insignificant. 
even though they they may not occur, you know, maybe they're they occur, they're not frequent. And so I think um, a TAVR would be classified as a major elective procedure, presumably, and with a high procedural risk. And typically for patients that are undergoing TAVR, they're going to be, the reason they're undergoing TAVR and perhaps not aortic, uh, open aortic surgery, um, particularly for aortic regurgitation, is probably going to be because of uh, patient comorbidities as well. So I, I would classify this as two out of the three elements being just generically being met or, um, and so it would either be uh, a not, depending on if it's new, it would fall into a moderate medical decision-making if you decided that aortic regurgitation, but the problem addressed was not, um, was moderate, but typically this might be high. Um, and so I would classify this as high, high complexity medical decision-making um, overall. So do you think it would um, depend on the present, I think you said this, but it kind of depends on the presentation of the patient because um, we, at least from the problem standpoint, because some of the TAPR patients can be healthier now. Yeah, I, I just think that aortic, they, they point out here aortic regurgitation. Mm -hmm. I think it's done for stenosis. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's just an urgency here that is is driving the decision for TAPR, but I'm speculating, but I, I agree. It depends on the the impact of the aortic regurgitation on the patient's condition. So, and it's sort of that difference that you pointed out earlier in the presentation between what takes it from moderate to high. So, you know, are there is there life at risk for high, or, um, you know, is it an acute presentation and something that's that needs to be taken care of quickly in the near future, or is it more of something that's um, just high complexity, you know, with a high high um, risk of morbidity. So I think there's that difference in, in the um, significant risk, sorry, for, mid, for, morbidity, for morbidity as opposed to high. That's sort of one of the differentiations with moderate to high. Okay. And we have another question. Um, now that we are doing a lot of telemedicine visits, how does this affect coding, if any? We have challenges with connectivity, et cetera. Thanks for a great session. Uh, Julie, I'll, ask, I'll let you answer the telemedicine one. Um, yeah. So with, um, in the coding workshop, we did, we did have a session on telemedicine and there are, with the pandemic going on, there are a lot of um, opportunities that aren't going to be around forever for telemedicine services. Um, and some, there's actually some services that are going to be more permanent. So it does, you can um, get paid for telemedicine services and it, it, and some are just through the end of this year. Some of them are just through the end of the pandemic and some of them are permanent. So, um, so it really kind of varies on what types of services you're providing um, to the patient, but, but it is something that you can, can do and get, get reimbursed for. Um, and then as far as the connectivity, you know, those are things that, um, you know, definitely can be a problem. So, but there are some, some leniencies as far as if you can do, you can do some of the phone visits and get reimbursed for those right now. Um, so not everything has to be with the, through the, the video um, synchronous or asynchronous. Yep, so Julie, um, using some of Aaron's examples today, if a patient were to see that type of a patient uh, tomorrow, on Monday in the office, how would they code that? Would they use the existing E&M codes, the new outpatient, new and established E&M codes, even though it's a televisit? Yes, I believe that's correct. I think that's correct. That's because of the pandemic. The pandemic is allowing that for right now. And there are efforts underway to try and extend telemedicine past the pandemic. I mean, basically, it's valuable to patients and valuable to uh, to, to, to doctors to provide that type of care, but that's an unknown at the moment, okay? At the moment, it's only, most of the telemedicine rules are only extending through the pandemic. Aaron, thank you for, for a wonderful, okay, uh, job uh, do, doing this. Uh, I think as Wes had mentioned, these uh, slides will be available on the website, okay, starting tomorrow. There's also an uh, AMA uh, CPT uh, medical decision-making table that exists. It brings all this together into one table. And what I've actually found is sitting there with the table working through the examples allows me to understand this a little bit better till I get used to it. Um, but again, thank you. Julie, any other comments? No, I don't think so. Aaron, any parting words? 
No, I mean, the only thing I would say is that, you know, I would encourage our members to share their experiences that they're getting as they send out these codes with us because um, these codes, the implementation of these codes and, and how they were going to be audited and how payers are going to view it, the documentation is is still unclear and we're relatively new in this. And so um, sharing this type of information is going to be useful for us to share with our members as to how they're going to specifically use some of these, how we categorize some of these elements. And then uh, we got one more question. Can we send the reference to the CPT table? We should get that out to the website because that's, uh, that's publicly available information. So we'll get the link out to that. And you also have the um, coding help desk as a resource if you if you have questions that come up that you need assistance with. All right, with that, good evening. Thank you and good evening. Thank you to our panelists today for your participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available at sts.org as well as on the STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Delve into the extraordinary content from STS 2021 with annual meeting online and get 360 degree views while luminary surgeons operate with the immersive video experiences. Each product can be purchased individually or you can buy them together at a special bundled rate. STS members save even more. Learn more at sts.org slash AMO immersives. Join us for the next webinar in this series for a discussion of high impact studies in cardiac surgery on Thursday, April 22nd from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all again. We hope to see you back here next month.